This is the Engineering and Leadership Podcast. Pat Sweet here, and welcome to Episode 17 of the Engineering and Leadership Podcast, the show dedicated to helping engineers thrive. Today, we take a look at a World War II-era guide to sabotaging the enemy through civil disobedience and how modern corporate culture looks like it literally took a page from that book. Hey everyone, this is Pat Sweet, and for those of you who may be new to the podcast, welcome. I'm super glad you joined us. The last couple of episodes have been more on the serious side of things, so today I'm going to lighten things up a bit and talk about why the CIA would rather admire the work that many of us do if, in fact, we worked for enemy states. But before I jump into that, there are a few housekeeping items that I wanted to uh, get off my chest. First, if you don't already subscribe to the newsletter, I would love it if you joined. I send out notes each week with information about what's going on in the world of engineering and leadership, and perhaps more importantly, my mailing list is the first to know about things like webinars, openings for coaching clients, and, and that kind of thing. So if you do think you'd be interested in that, again, I'd love to have you join me. All you have to do is go to engineeringandleadership.com join. Very easy, free to sign up. So again, engineeringandleadership.com join. And next, if you don't already follow me on LinkedIn, that's another great place for us to chat. That's where I'm most active online. I share lots of good stuff. Uh, interesting articles, tips, strategies, and anything and everything related to becoming a great engineering leader, great engineering manager. And it's a great place to chat with you. So uh, again, if you don't already follow me on LinkedIn, just go to linkedin.com slash in slash Patrick Sweet. Okay, that's all for now. Let's get on to the main content. In 1944, the Office of Strategic Services, the predecessor to the CIA, released the Simple Sabotage Field Manual, a guide to help everyday citizens of enemy states who weren't super happy about their government's wartime activities cause trouble, break things, and reduce productivity. To provide a little context to that manual, here's part of the front matter. Acts of simple sabotage are occurring throughout Europe. An effort should be made to add to their efficiency, lessen their detectability, and increase their number. Acts of simple sabotage multiplied by thousands of citizen saboteurs can be an effective weapon against the enemy. Now, at the time of its release, Director William J. Donovan implored readers not to allow the document to fall into unauthorized hands. In other words, the ideas contained in the document were truly considered destructive. Fast forward to 2008, the CIA Declassification Center issued an order to declassify this document. So now we're able to look through and see what was being recommended back in the 40s. I stumbled upon this a couple days ago and was truly just fascinated by it. On the one hand, many of the suggestions were kind of cute. It's the kind of things you might expect to see in a cartoon or a, a Saturday Night Live skit. So, for example, suggestion 1B2 was purposely forget to put toilet paper in the bathroom. 6A1 said train station attendants should make train travel as inconvenient as possible and issue two tickets for the same seat so that, quote, an interesting argument will result. And finally, my personal favorite, 7A1, said change signposts at intersections and forks in the road so that the enemy will go the wrong way and it may be miles before he discovers this mistake. 
So as you might imagine, I'm, I'm really enjoying reading through this, this quite a bit. And that was until I started reading section 11. And section 11 is on general interference with organizations and production. And that's where things turned a bit ugly for me. Because what I found was that many of the tactics that were being suggested in this manual, as I mentioned, designed to uh, sow the seeds of frustration, resentment, and poor productivity, are actually very commonly employed in the modern workplace. So what I've decided is to share some of these with you. I've gone through the list of organizational uh, tactics that were recommended in this guide and share five of the most common ones that I see in the modern workplace and offer some ideas on how we can avoid sabotaging ourselves as engineers and, and folks who are trying to lead engineering projects. So here we go. There's a section on uh, meetings in particular. So one of the suggestions, 11A2, was make speeches quote-unquote speeches. Talk as frequently as possible and at great length. Illustrate your points, quote-unquote, by long anecdotes and accounts of personal experiences. If we think about that, we all know that person in meetings who loves to talk, who loves to hear their own voice. And if you don't know that person, I highly recommend it. You you take a, a bit of a look in the mirror there. Might be you. Now, in our case, are these people enemy operatives? Probably not. Hopefully not. But this kind of thing does happen in meetings because we, we don't do anything to dissuade that. And it really does sow the seeds of frustration and resentment and works against people engaging in the work. So a couple ideas for anyone who has people in their meetings who go on and on and on and talk as much and as long as possible. The first thing I recommend is to time box agenda items. So really set a limit on how long you're going to discuss something for. Another idea is to set a rule for people to make their point and move on. I have been in meetings where when someone has a new point to make, they get 90 seconds to do it, and then there's a more open discussion. One of the things that I like to use these days is an acronym called ELMO, E-L-M-O, which stands for Enough, Let's Move On. So one of the things that I've done is I've, I've instituted this rule in my own meetings, where people know that if they feel like we've we've kind of gone through an idea as much as humanly possible and we're really not going to get any more out of it, people are allowed to call Elmo. And that they literally say that and say, okay, sorry, Pat, I'm calling Elmo, which is a signal that enough, let's move on. The final suggestion that I'm going to make here is that uh, there be three roles assigned for each meeting, particularly larger or longer meetings. The three roles are the meeting chair, the minute taker, and the timekeeper. And often what happens by default, whoever calls the meeting ends up fulfilling all three roles. And the trouble with that is that that's a lot of work and it's very, very hard to do all three things at once. The chair should really be there to drive the discussion and to really make sure that people are kept on track the minute taker does exactly what you would think, and it's a, it's a good idea to separate minute taker from chair, because what that does is that allows the chair to really engage in conversation, and the minute taker to independently capture what they thought was important, and particularly action items as well. The timekeeper is someone who really does, again, exactly what you might think. The timekeeper watches the clock, warns people when that time box that you've put around a, a particular discussion item 
is, is, is about to run out and keeps people honest and really does kind of enforce a certain uh, pace and rhythm to a meeting. So this is, this is how you might avoid people making, uh, making speeches in meetings. Okay, next item was captured under 11A3. And this one reads, when possible, refer all matters to committees for further study and consideration. Attempt to make the committees as large as possible with never fewer than five people. I don't know about you, but to me, this is especially common in large organizations, large projects. So let's have a think about this. Why why would the predecessor to the CIA encourage people to do this if they were trying to be sneaky about their civil disobedience? Think about it this way. The last time that you and your friends wanted to go see a movie or go to a restaurant and you were trying to get a decision out of that group of people, how did that go? Chances are that was actually very, very difficult. I don't know about you, but when I get together with my friends, we're trying to decide where to eat. It, it's, it's all but impossible. It's incredibly difficult to get a group of even a few people to decide where to go when ultimately it doesn't even really matter that much. You, you're going to get a meal at the end of the day. You're not going to starve. Imagine then getting a large group of people together to discuss something important. The, the difficulty there it goes up by orders of magnitude. Large groups of people making decisions means it's unclear who actually gets the final call, and there's never enough information to make a decision with 100% full confidence. So what ends up happening is to agree on something, everybody has to agree. And if there's even one dissenter, making a decision becomes impossible. So this is absolutely the wrong route to go down if you're looking to make a firm decision. Now, we do this, we get these committees together, because we want to make sure that we have all the information and that the implications of decisions are, are understood. And, and this is all good. This makes sense. The problem is to actually come to a consensus, let alone come to a consensus quickly, is just not going to happen. So here's what I recommend to avoid that particular act of self-sabotage. In a meeting meant to make a decision, it's important to make it clear up front that that is the point of the meeting. And there are a couple things that have to happen. You have to make that clear. You have to make the decision that you are trying to work on clear. And you need to make sure that the person with the authority to make the decision is there and that the information they need is also there. There's a lot that has to come together in order for a decision to be uh, makeable, which doesn't sound like a word, but hopefully you catch my drift. If the matter that's being discussed really does need Uh, further study or to be dug into deeper, what I recommend is to assign a specific investigation, right, to answer specific questions to a a small, knowledgeable team. Have them come up with recommendations to bring back to the decision maker. Don't send a small army to go study something and figure it out. Send a, a small, targeted group of people to deal with a targeted question. And you'll find that that's a much more effective way to to get to a decision. If, for whatever reason, you do need a large group, very, very important to set the ground rules with respect to how a decision will be made and what date you need a decision by. That way, you know what constitutes a decision. Does it have to be a plurality of people agree with the decision? Does it have to be a majority? Does it have to be 100%? Whatever the case is, you need to know what what the rules are, what the governance is around that. 
And if the committee can't figure it out by a particular date, then you pass the baton to an executive. Um, You have to give them permission to make the call and move on. Okay, the next item, the next uh, recommendation that was made in this handbook of sabotage was under 11A6. Refer back to matters decided upon at the last meeting and attempt to reopen the question of the advisability of that decision. Now, I don't know about you, but in in my line of work, it's hard to feel like decisions are ever really, really decisions, like they're really final. And it's very, very common, I think, in the modern workplace for items to be discussed over and over and over again. Decisions end up being pretty hard to come by, and when they're made, it's 100% acceptable to open them up again, because there's always new information that you could consider. There are new people who come into the mix. There are people who leave who may have been dissenters or who may have been champions for a particular decision. So every decision is subject to this this fluid nature of the world of work that, that we exist in. Now, let me be clear. It is okay to change your mind. This is this is normal and natural, but should it be the norm to change your mind uh, on the majority of decisions? Absolutely not, because that creates churn that makes it very difficult for a team to respond to those decisions and actually move things forward. So in order to avoid this permanent flexibility of decisions, I think there are a couple things that we can do. First, we have to understand, just from a headspace point of view, that No solution, design, decision, or process is ever going to be perfect. And to throw out the decisions you've made because they aren't perfect is is folly. It's ridiculous because you're always going to come up with a downside to the particular path that you choose. Second, make it as clear as possible how decisions are to be made. And we talked a little bit about this in, in the previous point. Maybe your company's relatively flat and majority rules, and you literally vote on things. That's okay. Maybe you're in a more hierarchical, more traditional organization, and whoever's the boss makes the call. That's okay, too. What's important is to understand very, very clearly who has the authority to make that decision and how those decisions get made. In other words, your organization needs a governance structure. Finally, decisions need to be recorded. And this is, this is shockingly rare in my work with various organizations. We're very, very good at capturing things like risks in a risk database, and risk and opportunity management is something that is very, very common in, in most project-based organizations. And I like using that as a model for decisions because it helps make the decisions real and helps to understand the history and background of the decision, as well as the implications of changing your mind. So having a decision log to capture decisions, make them concrete, and to socialize those decisions with the wider world, I think is very, very important in terms of of preventing this permanent flexibility of decisions. The next one I think most of you would, would recognize immediately in your workplace, if not in your own work, is 11B7, insist on perfect work in relatively unimportant products. We as engineers, we've got a nasty habit of trying to make things perfect. We often get wrapped up in eliminating every last little issue. But here's the thing. When you're trying to make everything perfect, you often run out of time to to focus on what really is important. You spent all this time trying to make unimportant things perfect, that what you're really doing is limiting your ability to improve those things that really do need time and attention. 
not everything needs to be A+. That, that, that's just a fact of life. And this is something that I, I talk quite a bit about in my Productivity Pyramid course, is that uh, it's something called the Pareto Principle. And the Pareto Principle, you may have heard it called the 80-20 rule. And the idea here is simple, is that 80% of the value of something comes from 20% of the effort. So if you take that to its logical conclusion, you can take most things to a B, B plus kind of level with like D plus level of effort, right? So, so there's a lot to be gained from identifying those things that really don't need to be taken to the nth degree so that you can focus on those things that are, for example, safety critical, right? That is important. You do need to take that kind of stuff to A+. So again, do not insist on, on perfection for things that, that really aren't going to matter this time next week, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's something we all get sucked into. And finally, 11.b.11, uh, hold meetings when there is more critical work to be done. I almost, I almost cried when I read this because, man, oh man, if I had a nickel for every time I was in a meeting where, where I really ought to have been somewhere else getting real work done, I'd be a rich man. I'm sure a lot of you could say the same thing. Managers and leaders have this obsession with meetings and I think it's because it feels like you're taking visible action. It feels like you're doing something. And listen, there's nothing inherently wrong with meetings. It's just that often they're not particularly well run and they're used in situations where they're not actually the best tool for the job. And the same thing could be said of email. Holding a meeting is not really taking an action. Just like sending an email is not really taking an action. It's the result of having implemented that tool that's important. So if you're going to have a meeting, it needs to be in service to some outcome, some product, some change. So here's what to do. First thing, when you're thinking about having a meeting, decide if a meeting really is the best way to achieve what you're trying to achieve. And to that end, you need to decide what you're trying to achieve. Are you trying to share information? Are you trying to make a decision, brainstorm ideas? There are a bunch of different reasons to hold meetings, but we, we tend to hold meetings for, for things that don't require them. Maybe an email is better if you're just trying to share information. Maybe a phone call, maybe a quick instant message. Maybe you want to set up a Slack channel or try putting up a whiteboard or a sheet of craft paper for people to sketch out ideas. There are a thousand different ways to accomplish the things that meetings could be used to accomplish. So don't be too quick to jump to using a meeting to communicate something. There might be a better way. Now, if you do decide you want to run a meeting, that, that's, that's great. But there are, there are better and worse ways of doing that. And we touched a little bit already on, on different things you can do for meetings, like having the various roles, the, uh, the chair of the meeting, the minute taker, and, and the clock watcher. What I'm going to do, instead of going into depth on how to run a proper meeting, uh, about five years ago, I wrote a blog post called The Engineer's Guide to Running Productive Meetings. I'm just going to direct you to that. I'll put a link in the show notes. It'll tell you absolutely everything you need to run fantastic meetings. The take-home message with all this, and I, I hope you see the, the humor in this, that there, there's kind of a, it almost feels a little bit Dilbert-y that there are all these things that we do that we know aren't super healthy from an organizational productivity perspective, but, but we do them anyway. 
the the take-home message here is that it, as as much as I want to laugh about it, a lot of these behaviors, like I said, are so destructive <laughs> to the the fabric of an organization and getting things done that the CIA's predecessor recommended them as tactical moves designed to thwart the enemy, <laughs> which is making a statement. Yes, an enemy of of uh, a different era, but I think it points out just how insidious these things can be. Luckily, work doesn't have to look like this. We can design our organizations and the way they work the same way we can design products. It takes work, and it means being uh, deliberate about the choices we make, but it can be done. And one of the things that I believe very deeply is that there's this incredible opportunity for engineering organizations to improve the way they run using the skills that their people already have. Engineers are experts in designing stuff. All we have to do is apply those skills to the teams that we use to execute those designs. Now, if you want to read the full document from the Office of Strategic Services, it's now totally declassified, so that's okay. I'll put a link in the show notes. You'll just have to go to engineeringandleadership.com slash episode 17. It's definitely worth a read. Really, uh, really interesting stuff. Also, I'd love to hear about self-sabotaging behavior in your organization, what drives you nuts, what you wish you could change, or maybe even more interesting, if you've been able to solve any of these behaviors, I'd love to hear that too. So uh, all you have to do there is just leave a comment at the bottom of the show notes, again, engineeringandleadership.com slash episode 17. Next up is the Engineering and Leadership Mailbag. This, of course, is the part of the show where I read your mail, comments, tweets, and messages and answer your questions. I promise to read absolutely everything you send me and share my favorites here on the podcast. This week, I asked people on LinkedIn for podcast and blog recommendations, and I got some really good ones. Uh, thanks very much to Neil Thompson of teachthegeep.com and Trish Simo Kush, who I know through the American Society of Engineering Management with some great suggestions. One of the recommendations that was made that I've already started listening to is a podcast from a woman named Tiffany Dawson called How to Become a Steminist which besides having a super clever title, I like that. The material is excellent. Tiffany is a career coach and strategist with a focus on women in STEM. I can almost guarantee already I'm going to reach out to try to have her on the podcast at some point in the future. In the meantime, uh, definitely do check that out if that's of interest, how to become a STEMinist. Uh, very, very good stuff. And there are a few more recommendations there that I haven't yet gotten to, but I promise I absolutely will. And I'll be sure to share those recommendations here on the podcast. In the meantime, just uh, head to my LinkedIn profile and you'll see the conversation there. Finally, just a quick reminder that if you'd like to be heard on the show, you can leave me a voicemail at engineeringandleadership.com slash contact. There you can let me know what you thought of today's show, whether you have comments, questions, ideas. Uh, I'd love to hear about it. Again, engineeringandleadership.com slash contact. That, my friends, is all the time we have for the show today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and please leave an honest review, which, as you know, helps me make the show better, which is what this is all about. I want to keep delivering more and more value to you. So leaving reviews is a great way to help me do that. For more information and links to resources mentioned today, just go to the show notes at engineeringandleadership.com slash episode 17. 
You can also explore the rest of the website where there's more free material, free guides, blog posts, other podcasts, lots of great stuff designed specifically for you. So I hope you do go check that out. Until next time, this is Pat Sweet reminding you that if you're going to be anything, be excellent. You've been listening to the Engineering and Leadership Podcast with Pat Sweet. If you'd like to learn more, go to engineeringandleadership.com where you'll find more free articles, podcasts, and downloads to help engineers thrive. That's engineeringandleadership.com.